I rejoice, my brothers and sisters, in the opportunity of attending this great uh, general conference of the Church. And I trust that through this inspiration of the Spirit of the Lord that I might say something in the brief time allotted to me that will help to increase your testimonies and might impress those who are not members of the Church. I thought today that I'd like to say a few words about the importance of prophecy and prophets. After the resurrection of the Savior, as he walked along the way to Emmaus with two of his disciples and were told that their eyes were holden, that they didn't recognize him, and when he heard what they had to say, he realized that they didn't understand what he tried to teach them, and so he said, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And commencing with Moses and the prophets, he showed them how that in all things the prophets had testified of him. Now as you study the scriptures, you'll know that the prophets detailed his life and ministry, even to the minutest detail, even to the casting of lots for his clothing at the time of his crucifixion. And... Um, Peter said, we have a more sure word of prophecy, and we do well that we cleave unto it as unto a light shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in our hearts, knowing this first, that, prophecy, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. That's an important thing. He said, for prophecy came not in olden time by the will of man, but holy men of old spake as they were moved upon by the power of the Holy Ghost. Then if we have that same power, then we ought to be able to understand the prophecies. And just like the holy prophets foretold the coming of the Savior in the meridian of times, they have foretold many of the important events that were to transpire to prepare the way for his second coming. I'd like to refer a little. The prophet Amos said, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now, if we understand that, we couldn't look. Anybody couldn't look for a work here upon this earth that isn't headed by a prophet. The Lord has never done a work that he is recognized without a prophet at its head. Thank God for our prophets from the days of the prophet Joseph down to our present prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball. I've known Brother Kimball for 37 years intimately, and I don't think there's a more Christ-like man in this world than he is. And if the Lord can't talk through a man like Brother Kimball, he couldn't find anyone on this earth. So I thank him for living prophets. Now, if we understand the words of Peter, he said we have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, there isn't any other way in this world that we can know the mind and the will of the Lord as intelligently and as assuredly as we can know it through the uh, holy prophets. And then coming back to Amos, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Any seeker after truth who believes in these words and the importance that Jesus attaches to prophecy 
couldn't look for a church in the midst of the some 700 there are in this land of ours today without it's a, a, a church with a prophet at the head unto whom God can reveal his mind and his will. Now, there are many things that needed to be done. Peter, in speaking to those who had put to death the Christ following the day of Pentecost, said, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send unto you Jesus Christ, who before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of the restitution of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. Thus, one looking for truth would look for a restitution and not a reformation and not a continuation, because if Peter was a prophet of God, we have to have a restitution of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets before the Savior would come, because he said the heavens were to receive the Christ until the restitution of all things. There couldn't be a restitution without there was a living prophet upon the earth unto whom these holy prophets could come to restore the things that have been lost, whereby the churches are teaching the commandments of men, as uh, the Isaiah said. And so we have a living prophet, the Lord raised up the prophet Joseph Smith as has been testified in this conference and we have more revealed truth through him than any prophet who's ever lived upon the face of this earth as far as our records show. He has brought us things from those living prophets, from those dead prophets who were to come to restore all things before the Savior could come again. Now there are many things that he has restored. You think, for instance, I think reference has been made to the dream of to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's interpretation of that dream. And you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the dream, and he'd called for the wise men and the astrologers, and and none of them could tell him the meaning of the, his dream. Then he heard of this man Daniel in Israel, and he sent for Daniel. And Daniel said, "There's a God in heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar." that maketh known thy dream and the interpretation thereof. And then he told him about the rise and fall of the kingdoms of this world until the latter days. And we live in the latter days when the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that should never be destroyed or given to another people. How could God set up such a kingdom as that that would endure forever without a prophet through whom he could work? to establish his kingdom. And then he said that it would be like a little stone cut out of the mountains without hands. In other words, it would have a small beginning. This kingdom started with six men, and it's grown until Daniel saw that it should become as a great mountain and fill the whole earth. And no other group of religious worshipers is growing as is this church today by leaps and bounds because the God of heaven has established it according to his promise. Well, I was president of the Southern States Mission. One of our missionaries preached on that dream of Nebuchadnezzar in one of our meetings where we had some investigators. And I stood at the door to greet them as they went out. 
And a man came up and introduced himself as a minister. And he said, You don't mean to tell me that you think that the Mormon church is that kingdom, do you? And I said, Yes, sir. Why not? He said, It couldn't be. I said, Why couldn't it? He said, You can't have a kingdom without a king, and we don't have a king, and so we don't have a kingdom. Oh, I said, My friend, you didn't read far enough. You just read the seventh chapter of Daniel for Daniel saw one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, and unto him was given the kingdom, that all other kingdoms, powers, and dominions under the whole heavens should serve and obey him. Now I said, my friend, tell me, how can the kingdom be given to him when he comes in the clouds of heaven if there's no kingdom prepared for him? That's what we Latter-day Saints are doing you saints of God that are making the sacrifices you do of your time and your talents and your means and your youth to, to promote the great missionary program of the church, the payment of your tithes and your offerings. There's nothing else like it in all this world today because God is working through his prophets. Like uh, Paul of old said, speaking the church of his day, he said, is built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ the Lord as the chief cornerstone. So one seeking truth should look for a church that's built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. And I bear you my witness that this is the church of Jesus Christ built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ the Lord still directing his church through his living prophets. And we have many other prophecies. Uh, uh, Paul said that the Lord had revealed unto them the mystery of his will. Now that's quite a statement, isn't it? The mystery of the Lord's will. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he would bring together in one in Christ all that which is in heaven above and that which is in the earth beneath. No other church in this world has any such a program to unite the heavens with that which is upon this earth. Then we read in the prophets about how, uh, how uh, the Lord's people had come up as saviors upon Mount Zion. We read of the word of Jesus when he said, The hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, because all the multitudes who have gone beyond have to hear the gospel. We're told that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. And that gives us to understand just in a little way the meaning of the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, Else why are they baptized for their dead if the dead rise not at all? Why then are they baptized for their dead? Another great thing that was to happen in this dispensation as Malachi declared the Lord speaking through the prophet Malachi. He said that he would send his messenger to prepare the way for his coming, and he would come swiftly to his temple. And who could abide the day of his coming? Because he would be his refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Obviously, that had no reference to his first coming. He didn't come swiftly to his temple. All men could abide the day of his coming, but we're told that when he comes in the latter days, that the wicked will cry out, Let the rocks fall upon us to hide us, from his presence. Well, we have, uh, uh, we have that program which leads into the use of our temples. 
and ties into the further statement of Malachi when he said, Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I will send unto you Elijah the prophet, and he shall turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children, lest I come and smite the whole earth with a curse. Think of the consequences. Where in all the world can you go and find the message of the return of Elijah according to the promise? He has come. He appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery on the 3rd day of April, 1836, and brought the keys of this great message and, and work to unite the heavens with the earth that's caused for the building of our temples. And then, then that brings you back also to what Isaiah saw when he said that he should come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains and all nations would flow unto it and they would say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he might teach us of his ways and we might walk in, on in his paths. This temple on this temple block is that house of the God of Jacob that our pioneer fathers started to build when they were a thousand miles from transportation and it took them 40 years to build it. And isn't it a glorious thing, one of the most beautiful buildings in the world? And those of us who lived filled missions in early days know how literally every convert, as soon as they joined the church, would want to sell everything they had, saving their money, as I saw in Little Holland, by the nickels and the dimes till they could find enough to come to this land because of the drawing power of that temple that they could learn of his ways and walk in his paths. Now, there are many other things. The time isn't to... But I'd just like to refer to the fact that Isaiah also saw and pronounced that the Lord would set his hand the second time to gather scattered Israel, that he would bring in uh, the dispersed of Judah, and he would set up an ensign unto the nations. The angel Moroni reported that, or repeated that passage to the prophet Joseph when he was only 18 years old, when he visited him three times during the night and again the next morning, indicating that that work was to be established. Just think of the assignment to the prophet Joseph at that time. He has set up an ensign to the nations. No other church in the world is accomplishing what this church is doing for its members and developing its members, and that's an ensign unto the world. And people come to us to learn how we are accomplishing these things. Now Isaiah saw many other things in connection with this gathering. He saw that um, the Lord would gather Israel quickly and, and with speed, that they wouldn't even have time to loosen those shoe latchets of their shoes or to slumber or sleep. Imagine a statement like that way back in the days of Isaiah, thousands of years ago, for their means of transportation at that time. Just to illustrate the fulfillment of that, when President McKay went to Scotland to help organize the first stake in his bunny Scotland, upon his return in reporting to us, brethren of the Twelve in the temple, he said he left London at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and he uh, spent a little time with the brethren in Chicago, and he was in his own bed that night. And then he, he didn't have time to loosen the shoe latchets of his shoes or slumber or sleep. And then he, uh, <clears throat> he uh, 
uh, and then he told us and compared it with when his people came to Zion in the early days, when they were 43 days on the water and then weeks getting across the plains. And just think of the gathering if there's time to go into the further prophecies of how our people were to be brought here and travel along the riverbanks and so forth. And that our pioneers did and the Lord would turn their sorrows into rejoicing. And then Jeremiah said, the day would come when it should no longer be said, as sure as God lives, who hath led Israel out, up out of Egypt, no, out of, out of Egypt, out of bondage and captivity, but as sure as God lives, who hath gathered Israel from the four quarters of the earth, whithersoever they have been scattered. That's what the Lord has been doing with this people ever since the organization of the church. And now that we're able to carry stakes and temples to them, they're gathered to their stakes of Zion. Now, um, uh, then, the, I, then Jeremiah adds that the Lord would send for many fishers, and they would fish them, and many hunters, and they would hunt them <coughs> from the hills, from the mountains, and from the holes in the rocks. Any of you who have been out in the mission field in scattered areas and know how our missionaries, over 21,000 of them, are going from door to door and hamlet to hamlet, gather them, as the prophet said, by the, uh, um, uh, out of the holes of the rocks and the hills, you'd realize how literally this church is fulfilling the words of the prophets. And then Jeremiah said, Turn unto me, O backsliding children, for I am married unto you. What a covenant! And I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors after mine own heart, and they shall teach you with knowledge and with understanding. You people here today have come, one of a city and two of a family, to learn of the ways of the Lord. And where are the pastors that are teaching you according to his will? These brethren here, my companions and associates on, the, and on this stand today. My time is gone. God bless you all. And I hope that you'll realize that the Lord is speaking through his living prophets, that this church is built upon the foundation of living prophets. And we come to the world to bear witness of what he's done because we know of a surety that this is his work. That's my testimony, and I bear it in great humility and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I suppose that everybody knows that even if it's not yet church doctrine, that French is the language of heaven. <laughs> yes. And uh, if you didn't know it, I think it's still time to repent before the next conference. <laughs> My dear brothers and sisters, if I'm here today, I owe it to hundreds of hands that pushed me, that pulled me, that helped me, sustained me to be here today. In fact, to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And what I want to share today with you is simply a message of gratitude. First, to thank my wife, my dear wife, for what she has done for me, for the faith that she had in me, and her constant effort to be a loving mother 
with two boys. To my mother, now deceased, but who had the courage to lead the family to the church, to see that the children of the family were taught in the principles of the gospel. To my father, still not a member, but for what he taught me to always select quality in life. To the missionaries. The missionaries who came knocking to my door to bring me the message of the restoration of the gospel. To those who taught me, who baptized me, but also to those with whom I had the great pleasure to work in the France-Switzerland mission. Missionaries that I respect for their dedication, their sacrifice, and their example. Thank you to you great people of America. For you, your fathers and your grandfathers, who gave their lives to give freedom to my country two times in 40 years. Thank you to the leaders of the church, to the managers that have helped me to be a constant practicer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you also to the prophet of the Lord, President Kimball, that I love and admire because he's there to lead us, to guide us in very difficult times. Thank you to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for his sacrifice. Thank you for my Father in heaven, who gave me the possibility to learn about the beautifulness of his gospel. I'd like to share with you my testimony, that I know that God lives, that I know that Jesus is the Christ, as well as I know that the Holy Ghost can murmur and whisper at your ears the same testimony that I have today about the veracity of the Book of Mormon and all the principles that exist in the Church of Jesus Christ on earth today. And this I bear solemn witness to you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. A quiet morning last week, I left my office in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and walked over to the Sao Paulo Temple site. There was a soft morning mist beginning to clear away. As I walked up the gentle rise from the street onto the site, I noted with great interest and pleasure brush being cleared away and new pegs recently driven into the ground. These pegs in the ground mark the dimensions of a new temple soon to be erected for the glory of God and the endless blessings of his children in South America. This temple will be different from any other building now standing in South America. As I stood where the entrance of the temple will be, I recalled how 36 years ago my companions and I landed by ship in Santos after 21 days at sea and went by train to Sao Paulo. There were other missionaries on the same vessel going to Argentina and Uruguay, which were the two other relatively new missions on that continent. In all of South America, there were but a mere handful of members of the church, mostly immigrants from Europe, many of whom were converted in Europe. 
as I stood last week on this site, where this new special multi-million dollar building will stand, I recalled how difficult and unpromising the future of the Church appeared in South America 36 years ago. In all our mission, we had only three baptisms in one year, despite the conscientious labors of over 70 missionaries. We did not have the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, or the Book of Mormon translated into Portuguese. We held our meetings in rooms that were small and unfit for the lofty message we were trying to teach. We often had to sweep out these rooms before meeting to remove the empty bottles and trash from the revelry of the night before. It was always difficult and often discouraging. In comparison, last year in South America there were over 8,000 convert baptisms. There are now 22 stakes and 17 missions of the Church with over 152,000 members on that vast continent. And the work has only begun. Our great first-generation South American regional representatives, presidents of stakes and missions, are men of affairs, including bankers, businessmen, factory owners, and professional men. They are men of great ability and faith. I marveled how through the Spirit of God this has all come about. Surely it is a fulfillment of what Jesus said to his early apostles, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Having seen it all from close range, I cannot doubt that this is the work of God. What has happened in Brazil has also happened in the other countries as well. The day I was at the temple site, President McAllister of the Bolivia La Paz Mission wrote, we are still amazed at the growth of the Church since we were here before. When we left in 1967, there were fewer than 300 members compared to our 8,500. President Bradford, sustained yesterday as a general authority, writes from Chile, For as young as the Church is in Chile, I marvel at the strength and ability of many local leaders. Surely the keys of the kingdom have been given to our present prophet and to the modern apostles even as these were given by the Savior anciently. Last week at the temple site, after much brooding and pondering, I stepped further back to where the inside of the temple will be. The morning mist had now cleared so that in the distance I could see part of the great city of Sao Paulo. I recalled how, as a boy missionary, I presided over the work in that city with 13 missionaries and about 300 members. There are now four stakes of the Church and about 100 missionaries laboring in that city. There are also neighboring stakes in Campinas and Santos. This great progress in South America has come about largely through the sacrifice and dedication of hundreds of missionaries and their families as well as the dedicated mission presidents from the United States and Canada. This is changing. In the Brazil Porto Alegre mission, there are now 136 missionaries, of which 58 or 43 percent are native-born Brazilians. All of the four mission presidents in Argentina are native South Americans. How can anyone who has seen what I have deny that this is the work of God? That morning last week I walked further on the Holy Temple ground. I traveled to establish from the ground pegs where the ceiling rooms will be. Already it seems to be hallowed ground. In my mind's eye, I could see the young couples, clean and pure, hand in hand with smiles on their faces, many with brown skins, handsomely contrasting their white clothing, 
who will come to this sacred spot to be married under the power of the holy priesthood of God for time and for all eternity. It was easy to imagine the great joy of whole families who will come to that spot to be sealed and bound together under the same authority into an eternal family association through their worthiness. They will come from the elevated passes and the high plains of the Andes. They will come from the sea coast. They will come from the great cities. On that spot, the doors will also be opened to the kingdom for those who died without an opportunity to accept the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ on this earth. In addition, worthy members will receive the ordinances relating to mankind's eternal journey and the endless potential and development of each human soul. This has been provided by a gracious, just, and loving Father for all of mankind and will permit those who have participated in these enlightening ordinances to raise themselves to their highest potential in this life and for all eternity with an endless association with their families in the presence of their Creator. With this in mind and with eyes wet with tears, I remember being told by one of our great South American state presidents that when he comes to General Conference in Salt Lake, he and his wife will have to decide which two of their five children they will bring to be sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. It takes 43 solis to make one dollar. Now their plans have changed. They are planning to take all five children to the first temple in South America. His brother, stake president in the same city, has never had the privilege of being endowed and of being sealed to his wife and family in a temple. That morning a week ago in the Sao Paulo temple site, I walked further back, still inside where the temple will be. Having looked at these plans many times, I knew where I was. I have had goose pimples and felt tears almost every time I have looked at those plans. I was now standing where the baptistry will be. Thanks to President Kimball, like in all other temples since the time of Nauvoo, it will be on a font borne on the back of twelve lifelike oxen representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Here will come the children, full of the mirth and excitement of youth, to perform the sacred ordinances of performing vicarious baptisms for those who have not had the opportunity in their lifetimes. It was easy to imagine the pleasure of those coming to be baptized and the great joy of those who have waited so long for this saving ordinance in their eternal journey. I was grateful that Jesus had said to his apostles, And I will give unto thee the kings of the kingdom of heaven. Contemplating all of this, I could not doubt that this is the work of God upon the earth. It was now time to walk outside the pegs on the ground, marking the dimensions of that long-awaited temple. I tried to imagine how high the front spire would be. At the same time, I tried to contemplate the time when the short, stoic Indians from Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and Paraguay will also come to that spot and gaze upon that same spire. I wondered if some of the men might not admire the fine craftsmanship in the building, and compare it with the quality of the workmanship in the walls of the sacred buildings of their forebears, still standing in Cusco and the Machu Picchu and many other places in South America. They had their temples also. These descendants of the Lamanites and others are people with a great past. 
And with the enlightening power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are a people with a great future. One of them was sustained yesterday as a general authority of this church. Recently, there were over 8,000 of them assembled in the Plaza del Armies in Cusco to hear the Lamanite generation from Brigham Young University. Their day is coming soon. What does this new temple mean, soon to be built in South America, mean to the people there? It means great and endless blessings. It also means great sacrifice. President Kimball said recently in Tokyo as he announced the building of the first temple in the Far East, no temple has ever been built that did not require sacrifice and hard work. It takes many pesos, escudos, soles, and cruzeros to make one dollar. For instance, last month the faithful members in Chile have sent over 1,902,178 escudos towards the construction of the Sao Paulo Temple, which is $387.90. The Spirit of God has been distilled and has rested mightily upon the countries in South America since the time of my youth when it was so difficult. How does the work of God go there now? Problems? There are many. Challenges? They are great. But the progress is almost unbelievable. What I have said about South America can be said of many other parts of the whole world. This is a great worldwide church, and so far we have only seen the beginning. Having seen what I have seen in South America, I cannot deny that this is the work of God. I invite any who may have doubts, but who are sincere and honest in heart, to inquire further as to what is the generating force behind this great movement. It is the power of love, the love of God, the love of family, and the love of our fellow men. And because Jesus has again given the keys of the kingdom to a living prophet and modern apostles, this love of family and others can be as eternal as the human soul, said Jesus to his apostles of old, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I testify that it is by these same keys and these same powers that this marvelous work goes forward throughout all of the earth. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I'm overwhelmed by this occasion and the circumstances that bring me here. A few nights ago, my wife and I stood together over a telephone in Santiago, Chile. We were holding each other and weeping openly after having received a call from President Kimball to serve in this sacred quorum. I confess my weakness before you. I know, however, that the Lord will build an armor of strength and power around those who seek his spirit. Throughout my life, my decisions have been influenced by a whispering voice saying, Come follow me. It is a great honor and privilege to obey as the Spirit directs. I assure you that the channel is open, that this might happen. I pay homage to my family and forefathers 
for their devotion and caring for the gospel in its infancy from the Restoration until now, and for their struggle to preserve Zion in some of its tender moments. I pray that I might always honor their sacred and holy names. My father and mother leave in just a few days to start their third full-time mission. Their love and example has had profound influence on my life. My father taught me not to be a toe-dipper, but to plunge into the good things of life, to bathe all over in the sea of the gospel. My mother has taken me to that seashore every day of her life. How can a man put into words the love in his heart for his eternal wife and sweetheart and for the priceless joy that the children she gives him brings? This is a sacred joy. It's the joy the scriptures tell us about when they say man is that he might have joy. Our companionship brings great tenderness to this mortality. During the new mission president's seminar, which was held in June, my wife and I had the privilege to be taught by President Kimball and many of the other general authorities. President Kimball penetrated our minds with the fact that this is a time for reaping. The harvest is upon us. The hour has come to gather the wheat from among the tares. Most of my life I've been closely associated with planting and harvesting. I know the anxiety in the heart of the planter when the tares are overtaking the wheat. The Lord has said, Therefore, let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe. Then ye shall first gather out the wheat from among the tares, and after gathering the wheat, behold, and lo, the tares are bound in bundles, and the field remaineth to be burned. The harvest is fully ripe. We are now sent for the last time to gather it in. The sickle is in our hands. We must use it while the day lasts. I feel the word of the Lord being fulfilled. In Chile Santiago Mission, 120 missionaries, 32 of them native Chileans serving in their own land, baptized 220 people during the month of September. Among these, there were 40 families. The missionaries in Chile love to follow the prophet. I'm honored to be one of the workers. I take great comfort knowing that the Savior directs this work, that his direction comes when the living prophet and those who follow him listen and hear the voice as it is directed by the Holy Spirit. I bear solemn witness that this work is true, that President Kimball has the vision of its completion. With a repentant spirit, I present myself to the Lord. I dedicate all my strength and whatever gifts the Lord has blessed me with to be used in his service as I am directed by the prophet and by these holy men who serve in these general quorums. I testify to you that they are holy men, called to direct the reaping down of the harvest. 
I express my profound love for the prophet and tell you that I know in a very special way that he takes direction from a true and living God. I'm drawn to the Lord's words to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery when he said, Fear not to do good, my sons, for whatever ye sow, that shall ye also reap. Therefore, if ye sow good, ye shall also reap good for your reward. Fear not, little flock, do good. Let heaven and earth combine against you, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Behold the wounds which pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. I bear solemn witness that this church is true in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have thrilled with you hearing the testimonies of these new general authorities. I'm sure we all know and realize the church will be in good hands. Addressing the regional representatives seminar last October, President Kimball stirred our souls with an enlarged perspective of our responsibility as priesthood leaders. He said we must do things differently and better. Several times he issued the challenge, why can't we? Our stakes have heard this message. This message is getting through. Recently, I heard of a far-sighted home teacher in an elders' quorum who was given the name of an inactive member. On his way to priesthood meeting early one Sunday morning, he called at the home of this member. I'm on my way to priesthood meeting and thought you might like a ride. This man startled and somewhat angry at this early morning disruption of his sleep, said, no, I'm not interested, and slammed the door. He wondered how the church got his name. The following Sunday morning, again, the doorbell rang. The member opened the door and saw this same individual, bright and smiling on his way to priesthood. Just drop by in case you had changed your mind. We would like you to join us. He got an unfriendly reply of, go away, leave me alone, and slammed the door shut. A week later, the events were repeated. The home teacher added, we have a great group of men. We need you. You're a member of our quorum. Would you mind if I stop by next Sunday? This man who wanted to get lost from activity decided the only way to stop his early morning caller was to go to the meeting and prove he was not interested. The next Sunday when the home teacher rang the doorbell, he was not greeted with a go away, leave me alone, but with a man dressed and ready to prove his disinterest. But the spirit of the priesthood meeting, the friendly hand clasps, the sincere interest changed his attitude and awakened the conscience of a man who needed a gentle push. Priesthood quorums are responding to the charge by President Kimball to reach out to the prospective elders who are, in many cases, 
the fathers of so many of our boys and girls. This challenge should stimulate our best efforts, cause us to ponder, to study better ways. He does not have a magic button to push, only you, the priesthood leaders. He is saying to you, why can't we? Why can't we do better, be better? He highlights the urgency today, not tomorrow, today. The church could not function effectively in helping the Lord accomplish his divine purpose unless sufficient power and authority were delegated. This is the principal reason for the Lord bestowing on men the holy priesthood, to act in his name, to have the power and right to assist him in his divine purpose. The Savior said, Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Inactive fathers and husbands must first be found and then taught how to live the gospel. Six months ago, Raymond Gerlach was called as Elders Quorum President in Durango, Colorado, in that stake. He reports wonderful success in reactivating members. Home teaching is their success tool. They use film strips to help teach and motivate the inactive. Seven quorum members have each purchased a film projector, which home teachers use in the homes of the inactive. One prospective elder remarked, Don't send the home teachers to my home anymore. And then this man and his wife were visiting at the home of another inactive member when the home teachers arrived with their film projector. He saw the film strip. His heart was touched, and the home teachers were invited to again visit his home. These understanding home teachers helped bring him back. The leaders of this quorum selected the best qualified to teach a gospel study seminar, inviting four couples at a time to this discussion group where they learn gospel truths. All 93 members of this quorum have been identified and are being contacted. The elders president said, we don't have any failures, only minor setbacks. But all four members, all but four members are now receiving the home teachers. And he says, and we'll get those four. They are forming more committees, athletic as well as social and other types, proving to the inactive members that there is fun and joy in the church. After appointing a husband as chairman of a committee, his wife is called to assist him so that she becomes involved. The men of this quorum camped overnight in the mountains, and for six hours, they reported they sat around the campfire discussing the church. The elders' quorum president reported we had a real spiritual feast. As soon as a man is ready for a calling, the quorum president works with and assists the bishop in developing an appropriate position for him. When the leaders began having proper priesthood interviews, home teaching increased from 30 to almost 100 percent. This quorum has been resourceful in developing new ideas, but they attribute their success to the dedication of home teachers plus the blessings of the Lord. We have a humble prayer before we call a man to a position. And we have never had one turn us down, says the president. Men who had been away from the church a long time have said, I thought no one really cared. 
This quorum has caught the spirit exemplified by the Lord. And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another. President Gerlach has caught the vision of how to recover the lost. Today, stake presidents are calling Melchizedek Quorum leaders who are being taught and trained in effective principles of priesthood organization and reactivation. These new leaders are alert and not like the farmer Elder Sterling Sill referred to who was hauling produce to the market one day in his wagon drawn by two horses. The horses were having a difficult time and the grade seemed very steep. Finally, the farmer asked a stranger, how far is it to the top of this hill? And the stranger said, you're not on a hill, your, real, your rear wheels are off. Recently, a man told how he became lost in the middle of a ward with 500 members. My wife and I had our first contact with the church when two sweet spiritual missionaries called. They came, they taught, they converted. We literally lived off their spirit. Like many converts know, the first thing after you are baptized, those two wonderful elders are transferred. It was extremely difficult for us to keep that same spirit. We felt we could not go it alone. We withdrew from church activity. My wife told the visiting teachers not to come back, and the home teachers were asked to leave us alone. I suppose in the elders' quorum one morning they discussed some lost brethren who needed to be found. And he went on to say, yes, I was lost. One day there came a knock at our front door. As I opened it, I saw a young, smiling, freckle-faced man who said he was the elders' quorum president and asked if he could talk to me for a a few minutes. In the coming weeks, he came many times to bring us vegetables from his garden, eggs from his chickens, a birthday card for our daughter. Sometimes he came just to talk. He got me involved in the sports program. He even apologized for anyone who may have hurt our feelings. What did he do that got us back? He loved us. He was sincere. He cared. He gave me his personal testimony. He helped me to search my soul. He helped me to pray to my Father in heaven. For the love this man gave my family, we will be eternally grateful. The Lord has poured out his blessings on us. We have been to the temple of the Lord and sealed for eternity. We have returned to the temple many times and gained further light and knowledge promised to us. I am now working with this elders quorum president as his counselor. My wife is teaching primary and is a visiting teacher. I was lost, but because someone cared, someone took time, Someone took the risk of showing his love and concern. I was found and was able to lead my family back to the Lord. Then he went on to say, I plead with all members of the church to look around and help guide lost children back to their Heavenly Father. Our prophet has spoken. Quorums are accepting this challenge. The prophet said, why can't we? The quorums know that we can. They realize 
all that there are thousands of men who are waiting for only the friendly extend of the hand. Quorum presidents realize that the night is far spent. The day is at hand. I testify that Jesus the Christ is the source of priesthood power. No power can stay the progress of his church. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.